0: listening to Redeemer Church of Denton Sermon Audio. For more information about Redeemer Church visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com Well Jesus is a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. If you're into uh, old Puritan doctrinal statements like I am, uh, first off, if you are, you're one of my people, welcome. Uh, And all these old doctrinal statements, many times, and typically the way they talked about the doctrine of Jesus, the way they talked about Christology was around these three categories, that Jesus had these three different offices. He had a priestly office, he had a prophetic office, he had a kingly office. He has these different types of ministries. That's kind of led into a modern discussion on kind of pragmatic leadership, especially leadership in the church, in that we need all of those ministries today. In fact, we need church leaders and pastors who are both prophets and priests as well as kings and, and even books have been written on those categories and, and uh, evaluation tools have been developed on uh, helping guys say, okay, are you a king or are you a prophet? Or are you a priest? And kind of evaluating their gifts and, and kind of really the heart of that is is recognizing that, listen, churches need priests, they need prophets and they need kings. Years ago in the Bible church movement, there was a, an idea that rose up based upon some of this that, listen, if we need prophets and we need priests and we need kings and and no one is really all of those things that maybe they lean uh, towards one of those categories. Maybe churches need three lead pastors, one of them that is more prophetic, one of them that is more priestly, one of them that is more uh, kingly. Now, if you have some gray hairs, you're kind of thinking that's not going to work and and you're right. It didn't work very well, but that was kind of the idea, but it was a pretty short-lived approach. However, pastors and leaders do need to wear three different hats. But the problem is, is that uh, some who are great prophets, and thus they, like, get on stage at large conferences, if you put them in a counseling room one-on-one, like, they're going to cause fist fights and they're going to cause church splits, okay? And and for some people, if they're really good priests and and you get them one-on-one, man, there's some transformative things that happen. But, but they struggle to be effective preachers week in and week out, or they struggle with really casting vision for a church to grow and be healthy. But then sometimes you have guys who are, who are they're great kings, and they have this great vision, and they think about structures, and they build these great ministries, but yet they run over people, and, uh, and they don't provide substantive teaching on a weekly basis. So evaluating pastors is leaning towards either being a prophet a priest, or a king, I think is a really helpful exercise. But there's also a couple of ditches that you have to uh, avoid in in these evaluations. On one side, you can say, listen, I'm a whatever you wanna label you wanna take, and I'm really good at it. And then you fall into this ditch of pride. But then on the other side, you might say, man, this is the one that's most important, but I'm not very good at it. And then you fall into this ditch of discouragement. Now listen, This discussion has kind of led to the fact that, listen, we need a plurality of leaders and churches. Churches need prophets, priests, and kings. Thus, we need a plurality of leaders, but we also need to avoid some ditches with this thinking. Here's where I'm driving to. Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 pushes into uh, a priestly ministry. And it's specifically looking at kind of a very fringe character in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know who Melchizedek is you're okay, nobody else does, okay? He has like four verses. It's a super random story uh, from Genesis uh, 14. But Melchizedek, even though if you're kind of thinking, okay, who cares about a guy named Melchizedek? Hold on a second because there's some really practical and helpful implications about Melchizedek the man as well as his priestly ministry that really affect us today. But but the reason why Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, I think it's so important is because that some of us legalistically try to become priests. And further, others of us try to moralistically pursue a priestly ministry, and and, and again, that leads us to a couple of ditches that we need to avoid. So Melchizedek is going to point us in a different direction of avoiding all those problems. Now, before we dive into Hebrews chapter seven, let me just say a couple of things about the context of where we are. We're coming out of obviously Hebrews chapter six, and if you remember where we landed with Hebrews chapter six, is there was this strong push about the assurance of our salvation. And so he made this really clear teaching on if you've been truly converted, then you're assured of your salvation. All of that is based upon this priestly ministry of Jesus. This has led the author of Hebrews into this discussion on Melchizedek because Melchizedek also had a priestly ministry. So he's gonna talk about Melchizedek's attributes as well as what that means for today. Now, for those of you in, in the majority who have no idea who Melchizedek is, let me do this fast. Genesis 14, it's about four verses. Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot. And in that process, uh, um, uh, um, uh, there was a king of a town named Salem. And, And he comes out to meet Abraham and blesses Abraham. This man is both the king of a town named Salem, and he's also a priest of the God Most High. And so he comes out and blesses Abraham. Abraham, in response to that, pays this man out of worship a tithe. And so what goes on there is this worshipful moment uh, between the great Abraham and this really fringe character named Melchizedek, who again was both a priest as well as a king. So that's your first blanks here if you're following along in your sermon notes, that Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace as well as an eternal priest. Follow along as I read Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem... Priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." In these first three verses, uh, they essentially tell, retell the story uh, from Genesis 14, where again, Abraham is coming out of this battle, where he has rescued his nephew Lot. He's met by this king of Salem, a man named Melchizedek, who's also a priest. Now, the first thing we're supposed to notice here is he comes to this town called Salem. Salem is similar to the Hebrew words uh, Shalem or Shalom, which has the idea of peace or completeness or holiness. And so the, based upon the name of the town, this is where the writer of Hebrews says, "Listen, he's a king of peace." And, and if you uh, are, are speculating, okay, uh, Salem, that sounds like something else, you're probably right. Most likely, and this is what I believe, is Salem here is actually later becomes the town of Jerusha- uh, Jerusalem. And so this is probably the same area. it's probably the same town, where he functions as kind of the king over this town uh, that, that becomes Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was a king of peace in that sense. But further, the author of Hebrews interprets from Genesis that Melchizedek is clearly a righteous king. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, the Hebrew itself literally means king of righteousness. So if you break his name into two parts, it's king and righteousness, and you put it together, and that's how you get Melchizedek. But also there's a sense of the way he lives his life. What we know, the very little we know about him, is here he is, a a man surrounded by all these Canaanite uh, cities. All these other cities worship the Canaanite gods, but not this one. He worships the one true God, and then he comes out and blesses Abraham, God's chosen one. And so there's a sense that he's very righteous. So we know that uh, both based upon uh, his name and his actions, he's a righteous man. Further, verse 1 uh, directly quotes Genesis fourteen eighteen, which explains that he's a priest of God Most High. Now, again, surrounding his town are all these Canaanite towns, and they're worshiping all these Canaanite gods. But Melchizedek is kind of unique. He worships the one true God. Now, to put some maybe modern uh, sociological verbiage on this, there was uh, probably some social capital that he missed out on by worshiping the one true God and not the Canaanite gods. My point is to say, listen, this cost him something. He was swimming upstream. He was different than the rest of the world and being a priest for the Most High God. Everybody else was priest for all these other gods, but he stood out in that he was priest for the Most High God. So not only was he a king, but he was a priest. And also notice there's this talk about we don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened to him. And so the author of Hebrews makes this case that, listen, there's an eternality about uh, Melchizedek. So not only is he a priest, but he's an eternal priest. That's led into a whole world of speculation of, okay, who was this guy? And that's led into a lot of speculation that some people think that he was a pre-incarnate Christ. The technical term for that is a theophany, meaning that if, if you think back to the Old Testament, there's all these moments, and they're really kind of drop like breadcrumbs throughout the, New Te- throughout the Old Testament to point us to Christ. And most likely what happened in the Old Testament is Jesus kind of appeared in these mysterious ways throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you remember from uh, the life of Jacob in Genesis 32, he wrestled with some mysterious character. I think that was a theophany. I think that was an example of a pre-incarnate Christ wrestling with Jacob. If you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was a fourth person in that fire with him. Who was who that fourth person in Daniel 3? I, I think that's an example of a pre-incarnate Christ. But, but I think a better way of understanding Melchizedek is that he was a genuinely faithful man. And the way I get there is just, you know, it, it tags this actual town that he was from, okay? I think he was a real man. I don't think he was a pre-incarnate Christ. I think this is an example of someone who was a genuinely righteous king. A man who worked for peace and prosperity in this city of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. And I think he was a faithful priest to the one true God. So he was a king of righteousness. He was a king of, of, of peace as well as this uh, priest. And, and he, uh, there was some eternal aspect to his priesthood. In summary, I think Melchizedek was an, imp- an, an impressive man. I think he was a really faithful man like if you think about the majority of kings throughout history they're not righteous kings right like if you think about most kings in history they're not ultimately working for the peace and shalom and the wholeness of their people they're trying to preserve their power right like, if you think of most of the kings throughout history, they're not these pious people that worship the one true God and then lead people then to worship God as these faithful priests. In short, I think our world needs more Melchizedek's. I think that we need more righteous rulers. I think that we need more rulers who are working for peace instead of just preserving their own spiritual power. I think we need more rulers who are spiritually faithful, pious people. The world needs more people like Melchizedek. He was truly a great man. That leads to our next section. That therefore Melchizedek was great. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendants from them, received uh, tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Here's the point of these verses. It's to highlight Melchizedek's greatness. He was a king of righteousness. He was a a king of peace. He, He was this pious priest. He was truly a great man. And then we see in these verses this logical argument that says, listen, if he received tithes from a great man, Abraham then he was, uh, even before God established the Levitical priesthood, that in some sense he was truly greater than Abraham. And listen, we know how great Abraham was. And so if Abraham gave this tithe uh, to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek uh, was a priest before the Levitical priesthood, he truly must have been great. In some sense, Abraham was in an inferior position related to Melchizedek. It was Melchizedek Not Abraham, who was the blessing, was the blesser. Further, uh, the Old Testament priesthood was great, but Melchizedek's priesthood was even greater. So, in in some sense, Melchizedek was even more superior than Abraham. And that's our next blank here from 7 to 10, is that therefore Melchizedek was superior. Look at 7 through 10 with me. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives one might say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestry when Melchizedek met him this word superiority pops up over and over through the book of Hebrews right and in fact we've kind of said this is the theme of Hebrews and we've replaced the word superior with the word better Okay, and we've said, listen, Hebrews is all about that Jesus is better. And, and so it has kind of a, a similar argument here. Superiority is a deal about lesser to greater, right? So it's not saying that Abraham is bad. It's just saying that Melchizedek, in this line of thinking, is in some way better. That, that's his simple argument here, that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek because the inferior is blessed by the superior, so because it was Abraham who gave the tithes and Melchizedek who did the blessing, in this case, and in some sense, Melchizedek is better. Okay, that's all the ins and outs of Melchizedek. What in the world does it mean for today? Well, listen, maybe I, I think a, a takeaway here could be: listen, we should be like Melchizedek, right? Like I think this is someone that that I certainly admire. This is someone that, man, I, I wish I was more like. Think about it. In the areas that he was in charge of, it, it, it led to more righteousness. It led to more goodness. And listen, I think that's a helpful takeaway. The, the, the areas that we're in charge of or we rule over or that we have influence over, are we making those things more righteous? Are we leading and serving in such a way that we're doing that in a way that is righteous, that is good, that is according to God's way and his words? That's what marked Melchizedek. Listen, I I think a great takeaway is be more like Melchizedek. Rule righteously. Listen, if you have people under your care, maybe it's in your home or maybe it's in the office, are, are you leading them to a place of peace and shalom? This man who is a king of peace it meant that in some way, the people that were in his care, the, the people in that town of, of Salem, that, that he worked for their shalom, he worked for their good, he worked for their wholeness. Can your employees say that about you? Can your children say that about you? Can, can your friends who are around you, can they say that about you? Those who are in your charge, in your, in your care, are you working for their peace and their happiness? Further, he's a priest of the, uh, of the one true God. There's a sense that he's leading people in a very pious way to worship God. Again, think about the people who are in your care. Are you leading them to worship the one true God? If you're doing that, I think that makes you great. I think that makes you superior in the eyes of God. We certainly need more people in this world like Melchizedek. Be like Melchizedek. That's maybe the takeaway from Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. However, I think the, the point of referencing Melchizedek is not to say, go be like Melchizedek. You see, there's some of us who, when we uh, uh, hear that charge of go be like Melchizedek, we think of some of those areas and we think, I'm actually doing pretty good there. And what does that lead to? That, that like the Pharisees who, who were marked by legalism that, you know, that said, listen, this is our standard. And then, yeah, I can do it. I can meet that standard. And what were the, the Pharisees marked by? Are the Pharisees the heroes in the New Testament? They're not, are they? The, 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 the Pharisees are actually the villains, right? Like they heard God's word. They tried to live by it. But they were trying to earn their righteousness by them. And what were They, they were hypocrites, but they were prideful people, right? They set the standard, and then they were able to step over it, and it led to great spiritual pride and a lot of rebuke by Jesus. That's one ditch if the application is go be like Melchizedek. But, of course, the other ditch is not what the Pharisees struggled with, but, but maybe what the woman of the well uh, struggled with. You see, there was this standard, and where the Pharisees had the moral strength to get over it, the woman of the well, she couldn't get over it. She didn't have the moral strength to get over. In fact, she was a failure in the eyes of the world because of it. And that led to great shame in her case. So if the takeaway is go be like Melchizedek, I think that's going to lead us to one of those two ditches. I've seen that in the lives of of leaders in the church. You see, if a a good king says that being a king is the most important role and he's really good at it, that leads to pride and running over of, of others. If you have a, a ministry leader or a pastor who's a really good priest, and he says, listen, being a priest, that's the most important thing in ministry, and I'm really good at it, then it can lead him to judging others and not you know, accepting a complimentary of gifts. And prophets, well, prophets are the worst in this scenario, okay? Like if prophets say, listen, being a prophet is the most important thing, and I'm a really good prophet. The problem is, is prophets can drop these prophetic truth bombs and then be terrible working with others on a team. It can lead to this ditch of pride. Again, pastoral leaders need to play a prophetic and a priestly and a kingly role. However, they can also struggle with pride or shame, depending on how well they're doing. But again, the author of Hebrews does not reference Melchizedek in order to say, go be like Melchizedek. Rather, Melchizedek was great because he's included here in order to point us to someone who's greater. Melchizedek's a type. Your next blanks on here is Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now listen, if if you've read the Old Testament very much, you know that the way that God through the Hebrew writers uh, wrote the Old Testament is they had all these different types that pointed to Christ. They they used this hermeneutical tool of typology. A a type is, is simply an analogy from a person, an event, or an institution that then prophetically escalates to Christ. So I'll give you some examples. Think of Joseph. Joseph was really good, wasn't he? Think of all the stories of Joseph. He was faithful in jail. His his boss's wife threw herself at him, and he ran out of his coat to get away from him. He was good, but but we don't worship Joseph. When we don't worship someone good, we worship someone who's great. Joseph points to someone who is great. Think of another type. Think of that lamb that was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, that lamb that shed its blood for all of God's people. And, and it did it for, covered on for the entire year, right? But, but we don't worship that lamb, do we? we? We worship a lamb that came, that shed his blood, that covered for all of God's people's sins for all times. We didn't have a, a temporary lamb, and we don't have lambs each and every year. We had one lamb, and it was one and done, right? Think of the Garden of Eden. What was glorious about the Garden of Eden? You walked with God. What's glorious about your future in the new heavens and the new earth? You're going to walk with God, but there's not going to be this serpent that tempts you. There's not going to be the fall. Things are going to be made right. No one one in the new heavens and the new earth dies, but you have this no more mourning. You have no more death. You see, Melchizedek was a king of righteousness. He was a king of peace. He was an eternal priest. He was great, and he was superior. However, Jesus is better in every way. Amen? That's the purpose of Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles Jesus in such a way to where we see he was great, but Jesus was better. That's the point of Melchizedek. Therefore, the takeaway from Hebrews 7 is not go be like Melchizedek, but go worship Jesus. That's the point of this passage. We have someone that's better and he's great. He's certainly better than me. He might be better than you, but none of that matters. What it, what it points to is there's someone that's great. There's someone that is perfect. You see, Jesus, not Melchizedek, is the ultimate king of kings. Zephaniah 3.5 says, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning, he shows forth his justice. Each dawn, he does not fail, but the unjust knows no Shame! you see kings rule over their dominion right and 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 this King King Jesus he rules over all creation not some little small town he rules over everything and his rule is always just it's always good it's always righteous he never does what is wrong he never does what's unjust Jesus never does what is evil his ways and his word are always to be trusted as good you see our flesh might not think God's word and ways are best Our our flesh might tell us, listen, if we go this way, we'll be happier. But we're the ones who's wrong. The reason is, is because he's the king of righteousness. His ways are always good. His ways are always right. His righteousness is born from a righteous heart. Therefore, even his motivations are perfectly good. Jesus is the king we need. And it's because his ways are always right and good that it leads to our peace. You see, grounded in his righteous rule, Jesus is the king of peace. Psalm 85.10 says this, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Mm-hmm. You see, out of God's righteous rule comes harmony. It, it, it comes a wholeness and peace and happiness. It comes shalom. All those things are grounded on the fact that Jesus is a righteous king. Because he's a righteous king, he he can then lead us to peace and happiness. So when we live according to his rule today, we can experience that peace. We can experience the promise of that perfect peace, of that kingdom that comes. He's making all things new. Again, Jesus is the king we need. His realm is based upon peace. It's based upon his priestly work. You see, as you know, when we need to be reconciled with someone, it always costs us something, doesn't it? Like forgiveness always costs something an atonement needs to be made. Like this is true in the courtroom, it's true economically, right? I, I always tell a scenario with my students that, that, that what if, uh, in this scenario, what if um, a, a kid borrows another kid's car and then while he's driving this other kid's car he runs over a mailbox. Like how do you fix the mailbox? It's gonna, it's gonna cost someone to fix the mailbox. Maybe it's the kid who owns the car, maybe it's the kid who's driving the car, Maybe it's the owner of the mailbox, maybe it's the insurance company, but somebody's paying for that. For things to be made right, it costs something. That's the way it always is. And it's the same thing cosmically. So therefore, we need a priest. We we need someone to administer all of that. And and listen, uh, we need a priest in order to experience peace. And, And listen, if we only need temporary peace, then we only need a temporary priest. However, if we need eternal peace, then we need an eternal priest. Are you with me? So Jesus is our eternal priest. This is what he said at the Last Supper. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice. He's the payment. Unlike other priests who take life, our priest actually lays down his life for us. Amen? Amen. No other priest laid down his life for God's people. Further, in 1 John 2, 2, we read that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So his priestly work completely solves the problem. It's a one and done with Jesus. It's not something that we go back to over and over and over again. When Jesus lays down his life, when Jesus pays the debt, it is done, it is finished. Jesus is the priest that we need. Isn't Jesus great? Amen? Isn't that what we're left with? Jesus is great. And hear me, I'm sure Melchizedek was a great guy. And frankly, I wish I was more like him. But but when we're talking about true greatness, the best thing that Melchizedek ever did was point to the one that was truly great. That's the best thing that he ever did. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So King Melchizedek, he can't touch that. As good as he is, it only points to a King Jesus who's the greatest king. It only points to this priest Jesus who's the greatest priest. No matter how you categorize that, uh, Jesus is better. He measures greater than Melchizedek in every way. Jesus is all that we need. And we're left with the truth that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious paradox. Think about that. What a a glorious exchange that happens here. Jesus is superior than anyone in every way. It it says from 2 Corinthians that he knew no sin. Jesus is better uh, down in the innermost parts of his being He's better in, in all his behaviors. He's better in everything that he touches. There's no sin anywhere. He's perfectly righteous. And what does he do with that? He takes that as a qualification to be the sacrifice for sinners. So so he took on the burden of our sin. He never knew sin. And he becomes that for us, and he pays that debt for, debt for us. The glorious exchange uh, 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 culminated in, in that this sinless one, he paid the sin of sinners, resulting in the unrighteous becoming the righteous of God. Isn't this glorious? This is what he chooses to do with his sinlessness and with his perfection. He does it as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake. His example of sacrificial love is truly better, but it actually accomplishes the best. Jesus accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish, and that's to save sinners, and he does it for our benefits. Friends, hear me. Our greatest need is not more Melchizedek's because Jesus is all that we need. Jesus' character and his qualifications and his accomplishments are simply better. If Jesus is all we need, let me close with some questions for you. Are you seeking righteousness in your own strength? Ephesians 2.14 says, For if he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down this in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. You see, if you die today and you stand before God in heaven and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And if you go to your resume, friend, you ain't getting in. You're not good enough. No matter how good you are, you're not getting in. But that's not, a, that's not a hopeless thing. That's actually a very encouraging thing because there is one who's good enough and it's his blood that covers you. He's the one who tore down the dividing wall of, of hostility. If you're not trusting in the king of righteousness today, then when we begin to sing, I invite you to slip to the back and visit with one of our elders. They want to tell you how you can be right with God. But this passage, I think, should also force us to ask another question. What are you more loyal to than King Jesus? You see, when we, we talk about kings, we're talking about loyalty, right? Like, like, what are you more loyal to than King Jesus? What, what are the things that, that you worship more? If uh, he says, go this way and live this way, you go and live another way. Listen, we know what God wants from us. That's the blessing of his word. We don't, we don't have to uh, look at you know, all this speculative stuff. We know what God wants from us. He's very clear in these pages. He's plain in, in the things uh, that he communicates to us because he wants us to know. But what do we do with it? Are, are we loyal to him? Do, do we go the direction that he wants us to go? Revelation 19.16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So if we believe in him, then we're going to be loyal to his word. A third question. How are you seeking to be made right with God? Are you seeking to be right with God in your own strength? You see, if Jesus is all of these things, then this is a call to rest in him. He's accomplished it for you. He's these things for you. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, legalism leads to a lack of peace. But resting uh, in in Jesus, who is the one who who has accomplished all this, that's how we find peace. What are you resting in today? Are you trying to be right with him in your own strength? Are you you trying to earn uh, his happiness? Listen, he's happy with you. If he's bought you with his blood, you're his beloved now. But it's his, ministry, uh, his ministry is not a one-and-done ministry. He also has this priestly ministry, and it extends especially when you blow it. I think that's the best news for me today. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Friends, Jesus is all we need for all things, especially when we blow it. Well, my last question is, is, what do you believe is greater than Jesus? What do you worship more than Jesus? And listen, the sad reality of all of our hearts is our hearts are these idle factories. But that's foolishness, isn't it? Isn't it foolish to worship created things when we have the creator that we can worship? Isn't it foolish to, to put that on something that's created? When, when over here we have the created one, the, the, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, this eternal priest, this creator God, he's better than all of those things. All we need is Jesus. Jesus is better. The Bible calls us to have a plurality of leaders, but we don't need a plurality of saviors. Jesus is all we need. No pastor is ever going to be great at all the prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministries that that he needs to carry out. However, our hope is not in some pastor, is it? Jesus is all we need. Don't try to be your own priest. Jesus is all you need. Don't, Don't try to earn God's favor. Jesus is all you need. Don't slip into that ditch of pride when you meet some standard or or fall into that other ditch of of shame when you can't meet the, 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 the other standard because you're called to rest knowing that Jesus is all your need. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He is this eternal priest. He's great. He's better. Our greatest need is not more Melchizedek's. Our greatest need is Jesus, and Jesus is all that we need. Brothers and sisters, I'll close with this. Rest knowing that Jesus is all you need. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this reminder that we all need today. This reminder that you're all that we need. I thank you for Melchizedek, and I'm sure the people in the town of Salem were so thankful for a righteous ruler, a ruler that worked for their peace, a ruler that led them to worship the one true God. But their lives were that fast, and they were over. And so Melchizedek points us to something greater. We're thankful for Melchizedek. But we don't need more Melchizedeks because we have all of you. Thank you for all that you have accomplished for us. May we be a people that rest in it. May we be a people that believe in it. May we be a people that believe in the good news, that you are our eternal priest, that you are our king of righteousness and our king of peace today. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.